Welcome everyone, this is We Chats, the podcast brought to you by the St. Andrew Society of Mexico. I am your host, Tania Fuentes, and today we are joined by a new co-host, Alba Sasueta. I think a lot of you might know her from the Society's events, and she's also the face behind our social media accounts. Welcome, Alba. Thank you for inviting me to share this episode with you, Tania, and of course with our today's special guest. Yes, today we'll talk about Scotland's flag, also known as the St. Andrew's Cross or Saltire, about its origins and its importance as a symbol, more specifically about its birthplace. The Scottish flag is one of the most distinctive and recognized flags in the world, and its origins go back to the 9th century in a battlefield near Haddington in East Lothian. But to tell us all about it, we welcome a special guest, Dave Williamson. Hello, David. Thank you for joining us today. Uh, so can we start um, by you telling us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Certainly. Uh, my name is David Williamson. I'm the, the chair of the Scottish Flag Trust. I've been the chair for just over 20 years now. Mm. Um, I was involved before that with the St Andrew Society of Edinburgh, which is actually the parent body of, of the Scottish Flag Trust. The, the St Andrew Society of Edinburgh established the Flag Trust in, in 1984. So I've been, I've been involved uh, in Athelsonford and, and the birthplace of our flag um, for 30, 30 odd years now. So can you tell us a bit more about the trust and what you do, how it was founded? I, I would like to start by giving you a, a quotation by uh, a Scottish writer uh, called Nigel Tranter, who died about 10 years ago. <clears throat> and he, he considered Athelsonford, which is the birthplace of our flag, to be uh, a special of special significance in, in, in Scotland's story. So I'd like to get this message out right at the beginning of this talk. And, and I'll just quote his words here. It can be given to few, if any, nations other than Scotland to be able to point to an exact locality where its nationhood was conceived, its patron saint adopted, and its national flag established. And, and the, the significance of that quote is that it, it's not just about a flag. It's, it, it, Scotland's flag, the Saltire, and the, the patron saint St Andrew are, are interlinked and they come together at Athelsonford and that's, that's the real significance here. Um, we were formed in uh, 1984 by the St Andrew Society of Edinburgh uh, with a specific uh, remit which was to endow the Saltire Memorial in Athelsonford and to encourage the proper use of the national flag. And I'll just go into both of these in a little bit more detail. Um, the Saltire Memorial in Athelsonford. Um, Athelsonford is a small village um, 20 miles to the east of Edinburgh. I'm not sure if any of the society members have ever been there. I'm sure quite a few of them might have been to Edinburgh, but very few will have, have, have heard of or been to Athelsonford. It's a very small village. Uh, and within it, within it is uh, the Saltire Memorial in the grounds of Athelsonford, Parish Church. Um, and the memorial was built in 1965 uh, by public subscription. And if, if I may, I'll just, again, I don't want to keep giving you quotes, but it's really quite significant. In the, in the church, in Athelsonford Church, um, in a glass case, there's something called the Book of the Saltire. And this was a, a highly decorated uh, book donated to Athelsonford by the St. Andrew Society of Winnipeg in, in Canada. And it brings together the story of the Psalter. And the, in the foreword to, to this book, and as to why there is a memorial in Athelsonford, uh, it's written by the, the minister at the, uh, at the time, uh, uh, Reverend Downey Thompson. And he starts off by saying, one day in 1963, a letter came through my letterbox bearing the Aberdeen postmark. It came from a person called Roginald Livingston, at that moment a complete stranger to me. The letter informed me that he had recently retired from uh, working in India 
And while there, he was resident in Lucknow. And the Scottish flag there was raised and lowered daily, which gave him a great pleasure because he was, he was a Scot. So when he returned from India to uh, Scotland, he was dismayed to find that there were very few flags and nothing like that happened there, flags being raised and lowered. And so with that in mind, he contacted the minister of uh, Athelstanford and asked him why there was no memorial to the Saltire. Mm -hmm. And it was at that point that the minister considered this was a, even, even though it came from a, a stranger, it was a, a perfectly reasonable request. And he formed a committee with the local school teacher and the local uh, Earl of Weems, who lived nearby, and set up a committee to raise funds. Um, and they commissioned a local architect um, who lived nearby to design a memorial. Um, and they were so successful that in uh, November 1965, they were able to open this new memorial. And uh, th that included the moderator of the Church of Scotland and uh, a platoon of soldiers from the Royal Scots, which is one of the famous Scottish regiments. And they actually have a link to uh, Athelstanford because their founder, his son, uh, uh, founded the Royal Scots. He, he came from the village. And the Royal Scots as a regiment have a saltire in, the, in their, uh, their colours and always have them. So on St Andrew's Day, uh, November the 30th in 1965, with great ceremony, the memorial was un unveiled. And so that all came about from a, 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 an individual, a stranger, who, who wrote a letter to the local, local minister, and that started the whole thing off. So... It's interesting. We have this memorial there for in a churchyard, um, raised by public subscription. To this day, I don't know who owns it. I don't think it's owned by anyone. Um, like within the uh, churches. Within uh, within the churchyard, yeah. And uh, what I think happened in uh, in in the nineteen eighties was the St Andrews Society in Edinburgh became aware that there was some uh, deterioration in the memorial and there was nobody looking after it. So they took it upon themselves to set up the Scottish Flag Trust to look after this memorial. And, and uh, having done that in 1984, they, they added flood lighting so that the flag that flies above the memorial, the saltire, flies uh, every day of the year uh, and it's floodlit at night just to mark the special uh, significance. But what, what then, happened in the years in between uh, its foundation and then why was no one taking care of it? Because I don't think anyone uh, considered it to be theirs. It, it, was, it was built through public subscription. People put money in to have the memorial put there, but, it, but nobody claimed it as their own. The church, the, the church had allowed their ground to be used, but they didn't consider they owned it. <laughs> Uh, they <laughs> on the responsibility of taking care of. Them. Yeah, so so that's why the St Andrew Society of Edinburgh stepped in, and then the, the original memorial had a was in copper. It, it, uh, I've never been able to find a, a, a colour photograph of it, but it must have been a, a, a stunning sight because it had the battle scene showing the two uh, armies facing each other and the cross in the sky. I'll come on to the what actually happened. Uh, but it was in, uh, in copper, and it must have uh, set within a, a concrete plinth, uh, and it must have looked uh, stunning, because uh, co bright copper is really very attractive. However, what copper doesn't do is uh, weather very well, and the weather in Scotland soon started to have an effect on the copper. And so the St Andrews Society um, then raised money and, and had to replace the copper with uh, the, the same battle scene, but it was in granite. It was uh, etched in stone in granite. Uh, and that has, that has lasted ever since without any deterioration whatsoever. The other, the other thing about why the, the, the flag trust um, was set up, you, you will have heard me say to encourage the proper use of the saltire. Mm -hmm. um, the saltire, the, the proper color is a light blue. Uh, you will be familiar with the, the, the flag of the United Kingdom, which is the, the, uh, the Union flag. Union Jack. Mm -hmm. And, and it, the blue in the Union uh, flag is, is very, very dark. 
It's a very dark navy blue. And that's not the right color of the salt air. And so, for example, to give you an example, if you went to a, a sporting match, Scotland playing Mexico at football, say, uh, and then you looked at all the, the football fans, uh, you would have had salt airs in light blue, salt airs in dark blue. Some of them would have writing on them um, that there is no legal protection in, in Scotland for flags, and therefore the, the St Andrews Society considered that uh, um, we needed to educate people as to what the right colour was and, and there should be no overprinting of slogans on the national flag. Uh, so that was one of the, the founding purposes uh, of the Flag Trust. That is very interesting because actually we had a, a match between Scotland and Mexico here in Mexico City a couple of years ago. And yeah, it, it, it's exactly as you described, like for Mexico, we all have the same flag because here it is uh, protected by the law. And actually you can't alter it in any way. You can't make like right. t-shirts with the flag or anything like that. You have to like respect yeah. the flag and it's like very uh, mm. delicate matter. But, but yeah. Uh, Actually, I, I have a flag of my own that my a saltire that my mom made for me, and it was so difficult to get the right shade of blue. And yeah. the ones that you can get online are darker. And yeah. Mm -hmm. but yeah, I, I found like the one that I thought was closest to the real one, but maybe it wasn't even that. So, yeah. uh, what have you done to like ensure like everything is well? Yeah, well, what what the the uh, flag trust and the Saint Andrew Society. Uh, and, and the Heraldry Society of Scotland. We got together uh, in 1999 mm -hmm. when the, the Scottish Parliament was established um, and, and we prepared draft guidance as to the colours and, and dimensions and use of the saltire. And we submitted it to the, 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 the new Scottish Parliament. And uh, while they haven't enshrined it in law, they did accept it as guidance. And because they've accepted it as guidance, We've now gone to all the flag manufacturers and uh, uh, said to them, can you please try and make sure that the salt air is made in the correct colour? And we've had uh, quite a good success rate now. So if you go to a, a sporting event and see loads and loads of flags, the great majority now, if, if not all, are, are the proper shade of blue. So that, that's a success story for us. Oh, well, well done. Yeah. <laughs> you can like unify everything from now on. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, that is very, very important. And, you know, I'm a, I'm a designer and let's say if you do like a logo or anything regarding like the corporate identity of a company, you have to give them this manual of guidelines, you know, like you can't yeah. change these colors and you can change the proportions. So it's uh, yeah. only logic and uh, yeah, great that flags should have the same, you know, like guidelines, like very well established. And so, uh, how was it decided where to place this memorial? Like, uh, why around Adel Stanford? Okay, um, well, that you, you're really taking us on to the the uh, the legend of the Sultan and, and why Athel Stanford is the, the birthplace, uh, and that goes back to um, the ninth century. That the battle is believed to have taken place in 832 AD. And there are no, there are no um, historic uh, records of that period. Uh, Scotland at that time uh, wasn't a full nation. It had a number of different areas controlled by different uh, tribes, if you like. The parts of Scotland were, were uh, controlled by the Picts. The north of Scotland was Pictish. And it was quite different in the west of Scotland where, where people had come in from, from Ireland. And to the south of Scotland, there was people coming in, uh, uh, Angles and Saxons. So there was a, there was a big mix of, of different peoples at that time. The Picts, the Picts uh, left uh, right right across north of Scotland a lot of stone memorials, but they have left no written uh, evidence at all. There's no, there are no documents from the Pictish period. Well, so what we do have though, so why, why is there a battle? You might say, how do how do you know this happened? Well, all we have to go on is that all the medieval writers in Scotland from the 14th, 15th, 16th century, they all write about a battle taking place uh, in, the, in the locality of Athelsonford. Uh, and that's what it's based on. Um, a, a whole range of them um, give slightly different stories uh, of what happened. Um, but, the, but the general story of the battle is that the, there were 
under King Angus, there was a, a mixture of Scots and Picts had gone southwards uh, on a cattle raid. <laughs> it's, uh, it's as simple as that. They were, they were out to steal cattle. <laughs> and, they, and they went down into uh, Northumbria, the, through Lothians and into uh, Northumbria. That thing with cattle was a huge deal back then, right? I don't remember oh, yeah. which movie you can see. I, I think it's the one about Rob Roy. That it also oh, starts yeah. with, uh, with someone yeah. someone else's cattle, right? That's right, so it, yeah. So it was a so, huge deal. <laughs> oh, it was a big, a big thing. So they, they, they got their cattle and they were bringing the cattle back through uh, East, what is today East Lothian. And there was a, 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 a force of Saxons under uh, a leader called Athelstan chasing them, in effect. They wanted their cattle back. And this was a This was a larger force. It was more, Athelstan had more men. And, and they started, the, the, the Scots and Picts were going more slowly because they were driving the cattle. So they, they were overtaken uh, just to the north of, of Athelstanford. And uh, a battle ensued. And uh, King Angus, the, the leader of the Scots, uh, feared the worst. He thought, we're going to lose this. And he prayed, he prayed uh, to St. Andrew for deliverance. And he prayed that if he got the victory, then he would make St. Andrew Scotland's patron saint. And, uh, and so the, the battle ensued. Um, against the odds, Athelstanford was killed and the rest of his, his, his forces lost heart. And Angus's forces won the day. And that's the story. Um, now, the, the, the writers, some of them say that uh, St. Andrew appeared to Angus uh, in a dream. The, the, the night before the battle, when he was praying for deliverance. Uh, some of the, the, the writers say that uh, a cross appeared above the battle uh, and inspired uh, the Scots to victory when, when all looked lost. Uh, and other writers say that uh, St. Andrew appeared in a dream and the cross appeared above the fighting. So you have these different uh, stories, but the, the, the common thread is that the Scots won And Angus, Angus stuck to his uh, vow, and St. Andrew did become the patron saint of Scotland. Uh, and in due course, over, over many centuries later, the Psalter became established as Scotland's flag. But it all goes back to the ninth century and, and that date and that event. That's great. No, it's, it's very, uh, I don't know, fascinating that you have some register I mean, maybe not mm. like history books per se, but some mm. writers and stories, and you can put mm. all the pieces together to see what, what yeah. actually happened. Mm. Very the, the, I mean, some of, some of the writers were very uh, well known. I mean, one wrote the history of Scotland. He was a, uh, a man of the church. He, he, he worked in, an ab, in, a, in a monastery in, in an island just off, offshore. But he was born in Harrington which is two miles away from Athelstanford. He knew the area and he, he wrote about it in great detail. And uh, his, his book called The Scottish Coricum uh, is, is, is well, well accepted by historians. We don't, we don't know even for certain where the battle took place. Um, we think it was to the north of the present day village of Athelstanford, which was only formed in the, in the 18th century uh, as a planned village. Um, We think it was to the north because on the on the on the earliest maps, um, which date back to the 19th century, ordnance survey maps, there's fields called the Bloody Side, and that's where uh, writers think part of the battle. The battle could have um, spread over not just one spot. It, it, you know, in these days, uh, the battle could have been a running battle over over a, you know quite a few uh, hectares of land. Um, but we think it was in this location where it says bloody land, uh, bloody site. And have you found like any physical evidence? I don't know, like weapons or bones or something. No, the, 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 there's there's nothing there's nothing uh, like that. I mean, it, it again to put it in context, it was probably a skirmish rather than a battle involving thousands of men. It was it was you know tens, twenties, thirties, fifty men maybe you know um, on each side, but it, it wasn't. What, it wasn't a Bannockburn or, uh, or the like. Um, the Ordnance the Survey, though, uh, is interesting because th their first maps date from 1850. 
And on the, on the first maps, they, they put on the map uh, supposed site of battle. And you, and you have, to, have to wonder how the uh, surveyors who, who produced the first maps actually put that supposed site of battle on, a, on an actual field to the north of Athelsford. And, and the, the general thinking is that the, the first surveyors would have been spoken to the, the landowner, to the minister, to the farmers, uh, ever at the, the school, the school teachers, uh, and almost certainly the, the site of the battle had been passed down uh, from generation to generation, and it was known to be in that general field there. So that, that, that's quite a good indicator. A flag is a meant to represent a country so its people can feel identified with it and with everyone in that particular location. What can you tell us about the Saltar importance as a symbol? By the year 1000, 1000 AD, that's a 170 years after the Battle of Athelsiford, um, St. Andrew appears um, on this, but he was accepted by then as, as the patron saint, but there were no flags at that time. Again, just a, a general point about flags. The Romans, the Roman Empire had banners that they would carry in front of their legions when they went into battle. They weren't flags, they were big standards. Um, but there was no flags as such. Flags didn't appear until the 15th, 16th century or so. Um, the, the, the first recording use of flags in Scotland, I, I mean, Andrew appeared on, on the seal of the, of the parliament and he appeared on, on the coins of Scotland. But the first uh, recording of him uh, in a flag, uh, like a flag, shall we say, was when the Scottish parliament in the, in the end of the 14th century prepared for battle against England. And they decreed that all the Scots soldiers should wear the, the diagonal cross of white on their, on their tunic, front and back, uh, on, on, on a, a, a black or a dark blue uh, background. And, and the reason for that was, uh, in these days, uh, all fighting was hand to hand. Uh, and warfare was a very, very bloody affair. And when, when you were fighting hand to hand, you needed to know if the guy on either side of you was in your team. <laughs> so, and, and, and the way to see it, you could see immediately there was a white, a white diagonal cross and the guy next to you, he was a Scot fighting beside you. Whereas uh, the guys you were fighting would have something quite different on them. So, so, so that was actually using a flag as, you know, in its earliest sense, actually in battle. Um, the first, the first use of the, the, the of a saltire uh, in battle was a century later in the uh, Flodden, which was a a heavy defeat uh, of the Scottish forces to the English, and the, there was a banner made there called the Blue Blanket, and in the Blue Blanket there is a a white uh, saltire cross in the corner, a, a quite distinctive saltire, and that's the first one that we, that we know of. Uh, and by the, 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 the next century, the 16th century, the flag of Salter, as we know it today, just a simple uh, white cross and blue, was flying from the Scottish ships and the Scottish Navy. Um, so, so it's from that date on that uh, the common usage uh, began. It's an, another interesting point about flags. Um, if you go to the United Nations in uh, headquarters in Geneva, I'm not sure about the one in, in, in New York, but the, the one in, in, in Geneva has all the flags of the countries. Almost 200 countries, 200, almost 200 flags on flagpoles. Um, half of the flags are either three horizontal bars or three perpendicular bars. Okay, so that's about 100 flags. Uh, have that sort of basic design, and sometimes they're quite hard to distinguish between each other. Now, the Mexican flag, as you know, is obviously three uh, three bars, but it has the Aztec symbol in the middle with the 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 eagle and the snake and the cactus, which etc. But a lot of the a lot of the country's flags are hard to distinguish. And um, there's about twenty of the flags have crosses on them. Mm -hmm. And there's only two of the flags because Scotland's flag isn't there. There's only two 
have salt tires. All, almost all the crosses are hor uh, horizontal ones um, rather than diagonal ones. Uh, and you, you'll be familiar with, there's only, one of them is Burundi, an African country, but that's a, it's, it's a very obscure flag. The one you'll be familiar with is Jamaica, which is on your doorstep. And how did it become the flag, you know, like because of the, the blue sky and the white cross? Or how did this passage uh, have a, a visual form as, as well, the flag? Well, that, that really, uh, Tanya, takes, on, takes us on to St. Andrew, uh, our patron saint. Because, uh, as I've started off by saying, the flag and the patron saint are interlinked in the story of Athelsenford. Now, St. Andrew was um, the first called of Jesus' disciples. Uh, he was a fisherman from in Galilee. Um, and after, after uh, Jesus was, uh, was, was crucified, uh, Andrew became a missionary uh, across the area near the Black Sea today. And, he, and he, he did his missionary work in, in uh, Ukraine, Russia, Greece. And interestingly, all three of these countries have St. Andrew as their patron saint. Mm. Okay, so it's not just they Scotland. they celebrate St. Andrew's Day as well? Uh, some of them do, and, and in different ways. St. Andrew was incidentally was put to death at Patras in Greece uh, as well. So the, the, there's, there's a big connection between St. Andrew and Greece. Uh, in particular. Now, St. Andrew never came to Scotland. So you might wonder, well, that's funny. He's a patron saint of all these countries where he was and did his missionary work. Why is he Scotland's patron saint? Uh, so there's a couple of stories as to why uh, he became so. Um, it's all to do with uh, the relics, some of his bones. Um, in, the, in the Middle Ages, um, relics to do with the saints were, were really quite important. Uh, for example, uh, King Constantine, Constantine the Great, the, from the, the Roman Empire days, uh, he, he collected bones of, of saints, and uh, he, he, his son put them all together in a mausoleum in Constantinople, which was named after Constantine. And some of these bones found their way to Scotland. Uh, the, there's a belief that uh, there was a saint called Saint Regulus who took some of these bones and he uh, went to Scotland by boat and he was ship, shipwrecked off the coast of Fife, uh, very close to a place that we, we know today as St Andrews. Now you'll know St Andrews because it's the home of golf. It's, uh, the, it's uh, the centre of world golf, the the. the the, the open uh, golf first started in, in St Andrews, but it, it's, it was known in medieval times for its great cathedral. Um, and the other, the other story is that uh, some bones or, or fragments of, of, of Andrew uh, taken from Constantinople found their way through England and arrived in Scotland in the 7th, 7th century. But whichever story is right, there was definitely fragments of St Andrew went to St Andrews and a huge cathedral was built there. There was an early church and then uh, in the uh, 12th century, the biggest building in Scotland, St Andrews Cathedral was built and it was uh, opened by um, uh, Robert the Bruce soon after Bannockburn. Uh, and the importance of St Andrews is that uh, in, the, in the centuries later, tens of thousands of pilgrims came from all over Europe to go to St Andrews because it had the relics of St Andrew the Saint. The, the, the only other place of, of similar uh, ranking, slightly above St Andrews, was Santiago de, de Compostelo in Spain, where St James mm -hmm. was, was alleged to have been uh, buried. So St Andrews and Santiago de Compostelo were the two uh, major pilgrim centers for pilgrims from all over Europe. So tens of thousands of people would come through East Lothian, close to Athelsenford and crossed by boat to Fife and on to St Andrews to, to, as a pilgrimage. And they wore on their tunics uh, badges with a salt iron on it to, to show that they were pilgrims and, and, and shouldn't be robbed uh, as they made their way. So St Andrews, so, so that, that was why St Andrew became a patron saint. But it, back to the Battle of Athelsenford, 
St Andrew was just emerging as our patron saint then. So when King Angus saw the, the cross in the sky above the battle and was inspired to victory, he, he was already aware of St Andrew, but, but St Andrew was only in the process of being established as a patron saint. And, and, and that started the process. And very soon, by a couple of centuries later, Andrew was a undisputed patron saint of, of Scotland. Some other people, some other saints had, had uh, some had come from Ireland, St. Columba, for example, uh, but they, they, they didn't, uh, they, they weren't successful. Um, St. Andrew was recognized by the established church, probably because he was the first called of Jesus. So he was quite a, he was an important uh, one of the, of the, of Jesus' disciples. And, and, uh, in, after the Battle of Bannockburn, just jumping slightly ahead here, um, we had something in Scotland called the Declaration of Arbroath, where uh, all the nobles uh, and, and the churches wrote to the Pope to, 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 to ask for Scotland to be recognised and to stop the English under King Edward uh, trying to subjugate Scotland. Uh, and, and the words... Uh, the blessed Saint Andrew appears in the Declaration of Arbroath. So that was a pitch to the Pope to say Scotland has been protected by Saint Andrew, who is a foremost saint of, of your church. Uh, and we want you to give us your support to be, a, to be a, at peace and, and not be invaded by England all the time. And, and the, Pope, the Pope accepted that. And that, that led to Scotland's uh, full independence. And by that time, has the uh, Church of England already been created, or oh, yeah. like different yes. of time? Yeah, at, at, at one point they had pretensions to take Scotland under the. Uh, it was called the See of York. York was the, the main religious centre in the north of England, and they wanted to extend their their church control into Scotland. But Saint Andrew. Um, proved uh, a bulwark against that, 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 that stopped that move of the English church. And, and, and even to this day, the established church in Scotland is, is quite separate from the church, churches in England. Oh, wow. That's, that's <laughs> so interesting. And speaking of the flag itself, has it suffered any changes throughout the centuries or is, is it like mainly the same? Scotland uh, found itself joined with England in uh, 1606. The, found the, 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 a union of the, of the crowns, not, not the, the parliaments, but of the crowns. And the English and the Scottish flags were combined into an early version of the union flag. Um, and the Scots weren't happy at that because the English St George's Cross were, uh, were, was seen on the flag complete and, uh, and it was to the foreground and the, the, the blue of the saltire was divided into pieces behind it. <laughs> So they weren't happy about that. And then in 1707, the, uh, the parliaments, as well as the Crown, joined and a new Union flag emerged. Uh, and then in 1801, I think it was, the Irish flag was added to that. And we have the Union flag as we, as we know it today. And so the use of the saltire uh, fell out of general use um, because the Union flag was used everywhere. And it's only in the 20th century, in particular the, since uh, 1950, the last 70 years, that the use of the saltire has uh, absolutely uh, grown to an enormous extent. And now you will see saltires everywhere in Scotland, on buildings, um, not just at sporting events, um, on, on logos. On, uh, you, you mentioned as a designer, the use of logos. I mean, the saltire appears in logos for loads of things. It, it is now clearly the, the, the flag of Scotland, uh, quite distinct from the Union flag now. Yeah, so it's regained power as a, a national identity. Uh, Very much so. Right? Very much so. Oh, and do you think this was increased with all the uh, recent uh, campaigns for independence and all of this? Yeah, no, I think it, I think it predates that. I think I think it goes back to well, maybe maybe it does go back to sporting events because again, um, sporting events after the the Second World War uh, started to see flags being used by supporters of countries that competed in World Cups or 
or, or Commonwealth Games or, or Olympics or whatever. Um, and uh, I, I, I always remember being uh, at a younger time. I was at the World Cup in Germany in 1974 when Scotland qualified. And I remember that the, there was 24 teams that qualified then. And at the start of the, of the, uh, the first game at the, at the German uh, World Cup, um, there was a, the team buses of the 24 countries drove into the stadium and they all, the buses, and each bus was entirely covered in the flag of the country. So you'd have the German, the bus totally covered in the, in the German flag and so on. And, this, and the, the uh, Scotland uh, bus was completely covered in a salter. And, and it was, it was, so that, that's the 1970s. And, and that, to me, that represented how the salter was what it was meant to be. It represented the country. And again, I don't know if you know, but there's a connection between the Jamaican flag and the salt and the St. Andrew's cross that we have. And I noticed the similarity, but yeah, it's a, well, the, okay. the colors change, of course, but yeah, it's a... Right. Yeah. Well, I'll, te I'll, I'll tell you the story then. Okay. <laughs> um, you, uh, because it's a nearby country, you, I'm, I'm sure you're the... Uh, your members would, would be quite interested. Um, Jamaica got its independence in the 1960s. And uh, what happens with, with a lot of countries that got their independence from the British Empire is they immediately set about having a new flag. And the, the, they had the, the, the colours they wanted. They wanted the black, the gold and the green to represent um, the black was some of the hard times they'd been through. The gold was to represent some of the mineral wealth and, and the green was... Uh, the, the lush vegetation and 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 it's also because it to be a hopeful uh, color. So you ha they had the they had the uh, colors and the, they they started off very very similar to Mexico. They wanted three uh, perpendicular bars, green, yellow, black. Okay, and the president President B uh, Bustamante wasn't happy with the the, the original uh, draft of the of the flag, and he was thinking, what what can we do? And there was a Scottish minister, a Reverend McGee from Glasgow, who's um, who's doing missionary work in Jamaica at the time, and he was he was uh, friendly with uh, the, the president, and he suggested to him. He said, "Jamaica is a Christian country, as my country is, and in my country we use the diagonal cross of Saint Andrew. Um, why don't you consider make, using your colours into a diagonal cross? Because Jamaica is a Christian country." So they, they played around with the colours and they came up with the Jamaican flag that you, you know today, which is fantastic. Oh, wow, that's a really interesting story. I didn't know yeah. anything. Yeah. Oh. yeah, I have another little story to tell you if you're interested in little stories. Of course, yeah, go ahead. <laughs> uh, I don't, uh, your, your, your neighbour to the north, the United States, uh, um, has a great love of their flag, the, the Stars and Stripes, as, 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 you're, as you're aware. And uh, apparently in, in Washington at the Capitol, there's a there's a, a flagpole where just outside the Capitol, where um, there is a, a trader, a vendor, who uh, every day brings along a pile of uh, stars and stripes, and he hoists them up the flagpole for a minute, and then he takes it down again. And there's a queue of people who are go going to give him extra money because they want a, a stars and stripes that has flown at the special site of the capital. So, in other words, it's not just any stars and stripes, it's a stars and stripes that's flown at the capital. And people pay a premium for that. Oh, well, really? yeah. yeah. So uh, a few, about 10 years ago, uh, we had an approach from the Clan Campbell Society in North America. And they asked if we could run some saltires up the flagpole in Athelstonford and uh, then send them to them, and they were going to sell them on the Highland Games circuit in North America. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, that's we, a good idea, yeah, and that makes yeah. the, the flags special. Yeah. Know. So we got we we we, we had twenty saltires, and we had little packages uh, with uh, leaflets and information sheets inside it, and a little a little linen square saying "Flag flown at Athelstonford, Scotland," mm. and then we ran the saltire up. The memorial flagpole for a minute, <laughs> took it down again, and put it in the in the plastic bags. And 
and the, the churchyard, um, the grass in the churchyard had just been cut that day. And so there was little bits of grass everywhere. So we put a little bit of grass into each pack with the flag to show this was grass from Athos and <laughs> with, with the flag. And, and they went to North America and they all sold out. Uh, and we got a request for another 20 for the next year. So that was brilliant. And, and we also, we also on the same theme, and it just, it's because people with, you know, from a Scots background have a great love of the Saltar. And, and we, have a, we also sell our flags that are flown at Athelsonburg. And we, we tend to fly two flags a year. The, the flags will last up to six months at the memorial uh, before they free on, the, on, on, on the, the edge furthest away from the flagpole when the, when the flag flaps in the wind. And so we have to put a new flag up. But there's a waiting list from, uh, of, I think it's about three years just now, of people who want to buy a used flag that has flown at Athelsonburg for six months. And uh, we've been doing this now for 10 years or so, and I say the waiting list is still uh, three, three, years. three years. And, and, and we hear from some of the people who bought it that, that, that they, they have this flag which has been flown at Athelsonburg, and they're... They'll, they'll mount it in a glass case and put it on their wall in their house, <laughs> that, you know, as a flag thrown at the birthplace of the of, of the saltire. And they're so they are so in love with the whole idea. Going going back to to the memorial, um, what can we see now in Athens for? And uh, what's I mean, what's their uh, restoration uh, project about? Yeah, I'm happy to tell you about that. Um, basically, the Flag Trust uh, is now the sole um, responsible body for the memorial. The St Andrew's Society of Edinburgh, which set it up, uh, it uh, came, fell out of existence uh, about 10 years ago. Uh, there is no longer a St Andrew's Society. So the, the Scottish Flag Trust is on its own. So we, we have inherited the responsibility for the memorial, uh, and indeed for a flag centre that we have um, to the to the back of the church, which we use to, so people can go in and uh, learn about the origins of the flag. And we have it multilingual. There's a Spanish, English, French, um, Gallic, uh, Polish, um, Italian. And you press a button, and you can hear the, the story in all these different languages. So it is a it is a visitor ex, experience, and the flag trust finds itself responsible for it. And the flag trust is a, a, a voluntary Scottish charity with limited funds. And so, any time that we ever want to do anything, we, we can just about get by with our annual running costs because there's. There's obviously, uh, we have to maintain the equipment on site and have new flags and we have to pay insurance for the, the, the Heritage Centre, etc. We, we, we can get by with all, with all the annual running costs, but whenever you're faced with a, a major uh, capital expenditure, we don't, we don't have the funds. So it was on that basis, we, we were faced with, uh, in particular, the, the Heritage Centre is in a, uh, 16th century uh, ducat, it's called. I don't know if you're familiar with ducats. That's a, a building that was used in the in the Middle Ages to, to house pigeons. I don't know if you're aware of that. Um, it, it was it was the, the deep freezer of, of its day, because back in the Middle Ages uh, there was no way of keeping uh, fresh meat over the over the winter months. And what farmers did was they slaughtered all their all their their, their, their animals other than some breeding ones, that they kept some for breeding um, because they didn't have enough feed for them over the winter months. Um, and therefore, ducats, which were filled with maybe four or 500 boxes, each one occupied by a, a big fat pigeon, um, provided them with a source of meat over the winter months. Uh, ducats have existed across Europe since the, since the Roman times. Uh, but they went out of existence in the in the 18th century with the discovery of turnips, would you believe, turnips and Swedes, so you, you know these vegetables, because they, they would feed the animals over the winter months. They could be left in the fields and the animals could survive. So they didn't need to slaughter their animals 
and therefore they didn't have any need for the ducats anymore. So they, they, they've all fallen into disrepair. So our heritage centre uh, is a restored ducat from the 16th century. Wow. But we, yeah, it's, it's a, a listed building. We, it's safeguarded because it's of historical importance. But uh, increasingly we found that it was uh, becoming, um, the, the outer walls in particular were starting to crumble away. And uh, Visit Scotland, who is the, the national tourism uh, agency in Scotland, has awarded us a four-star visitor attraction status. That's, that's, we're very proud of that. Four-star means that, you know, it, it, it's important. Uh, but Visit Scotland, who do, they do an annual uh, audit, sorry, a biannual audit of us, and they started to say some of the, some of the condition of some of the buildings on the site is deteriorating. Well, the trust is aware of that, but we didn't we didn't have the means to, to do it. So, for just as an example, the uh, restoring the outside of the of the the, the heritage centre cost us I think it's thirty five thousand pounds, which is a lot of money for a, a trust like this who only whose income is only a few thousand pounds each year. So, um, and there are other aspects as well. The 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 audio visual show, which was uh, with all the multi lingual uh, buttons was devised in the 19, uh, late 1990s. And nowadays, digital technology has moved on so fast that uh, it very much could do with a, an upgrade and, and could put in some a lot of fancy digital tricks that would make the visitor experience so much more exciting and, and rewarding. The memorial itself is looking very, um, it's looking tired. I think is the word we would use. Uh, it, it really could do with the uh, uh, being refurbished as well, and the the, the pathways through the uh, through the the churchyard, which lead to the the uh, memorial and they lead to the heritage centre, uh, they they are in a, a deteriorating way as well, and they're not access friendly. People people with wheelchairs can't really use them because they're rutted and gravelly. So we're so we want to upgrade them to make them accessible for, for everybody. Um, so all of these things, um, we, we put our heads together and we thought, right, we have to have a major upgrade. It's beyond our resources. So we've, we launched this public appeal and an international public appeal. Um, and we've set a target of raising £100,000. And to date, we're um, raising £100,000. Some, some of the money we're hoping will come from... Uh, from other uh, trusts and from the government agencies. So for example, we have something called Historic Environment Scotland. And we're, we're hoping by the end of this month to, uh, to know if we'll get a grant from them for the restoration of the, of the territory centre. Uh, so, and we've already raised through our own uh, appeal, uh, I think it's uh, 30,000 already, which is good, but we have to spread it around these four projects. Um, so, We've still got a lot more to, to do. Um, the, latest, the, the latest thing, um, I mean, obviously, we're looking for, for donations from everyone, Tanya and Alba. <laughs> but uh, and we're particularly keen at, at the memorial, which is, is if you like, it's, it's what started the whole thing in Athelseyford. And one of the things we want to do uh, at the memorial is we want to, to enhance the setting in stone and put in a... In a, in a, as you ask people walk towards the memorial, uh, a, glo a, a map of the world showing all the, the Scottish societies, the clan societies, the St Andrew societies in every continent. And so they would be marked on this uh, to show that this altar is important, not just for us in Scotland, but it's important for people who feel a Scottish uh, link, how, no matter how far away you are. So, for, for and of course, we, we will also put the names of all the donors into the Book of the Saltire, and, the, and the, the, the bigger donors will have their names in, also engraved in stone. So, last, last week, just as an example... That's um, great motivation, we, right, to have your name. <laughs> yes. Well, that's right. Uh, we, 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 well, everyone gets the name in the Book of the Saltire. So, you know, even if they give us a, a five pounds, the name goes in the Book of the Saltire. That's everyone. Uh, but the, the ones that have their names going in stone have to give us over £500. So, for example, last week, uh, 
I got two donations coming in, one from the, the Heraldry Society of Scotland and one from the St. Andrew Society of the State of New York. And, and both donations were for £500. <laughs> so they'd, they'd obviously seen 500 was the means of having their name in stone <laughs> at the Saltire Memorial. So uh, it's good. And, and you do need an incentive sometimes to, to you know, to, to, to uh, get donations in. What, what we particularly like, uh, and we've been encouraging societies uh, in North America uh, and elsewhere in, in the world, is to, is to pass details of the appeal to their members. So, uh, you know, if, if every, if every uh, organization has 100 or 500 members, if the word can go out in the, in, in the, the society's in-house magazine or in your, uh, on your website or whatever, um, uh, you know, mentioning the appeal and the, the, the uh, saltire.scot is, is how to get to it, I, th I understand, uh, Alba, you, uh, you will have already seen our uh, appeal leaflet. It, yeah, it'll be yeah, said yeah. To. We saw it, thank you. You saw it, that, that's fine, yeah. Uh -huh. And we accept money in pesetas, I'm told, as well. You know, we don't need to... <laughs> any, any currency to... <laughs> no, great. We'll make sure to yeah. share the information with our members and hopefully we can uh, yeah. come up with a, with a donation, yeah. either if it's like on a personal mm -hmm. basis or as yeah. a... David, thank you very much for uh, coming to our show. And uh, we'll see you later then. Uh, yeah, back to you, Tanya. Thank you. Bye-bye. Mm -hmm. Thank you, Alba. Thank see you, Alba. you later. Yeah. Okay, great. So I, I think that went great. So yeah. Uh, yeah, so thank you so much for being here today. Is there anything else that you would like to say to our audience? Anything you would like to add? Well, I'm, I'm delighted that the, the St. Andrew Society of, of Mexico has shown an interest in this. We're, we're always delighted to have uh, expat Scots or members of the Scottish diaspora um, taking such an interest. In it. We always find it inspiring that you, you still love Scotland and Scotland's flag. So it, it gives us great heart, Tanya. Great. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. And we'll be in touch okay. for future projects. Great. Thanks very much, Bye-bye. Okay, that was all for today. I hope you liked this episode as much as we did. Thank you for joining us in this second season of this great project called WeChats. I am your host, Tania Fuentes. If you have any comments, questions, suggestions, uh, please feel free to uh, let us know through our social media. Thank you and see you next time. Bye-bye.